Welcome back to Work, Love, Pray, Real Talk, Grounded in Truth. I'm Jordan Johnstone. Have you ever had a disagreement with someone and you thought there was like literally no way either one of you was going to make it out alive? Okay, maybe a little bit dramatic, but I know there are probably a lot of you nodding your head right now. I know I am. Conflict pops up anywhere and everywhere, and it doesn't really care about swarming into your life at a convenient time. Conflict also kind of has this knack for twisting the truth and kind of warping the reality of the situation. So how do you deal? How do you navigate a conflict with integrity and come out on the other side with a resolution that makes both parties happy? Is that even possible? Joining me today to very expertly walk all of us through this is Sandy Mitchell. I actually had the pleasure of hearing from Sandy at the Forward Retreat last year, so I can personally vouch for the caliber of wisdom you're about to be blessed with. Sandy is CEO of Apex Catalyst Group. She works with leaders from small businesses to major corporations and nonprofits to help improve and or accelerate in areas like leadership, new management transitions, team alignment, communication, emotional intelligence, strategic planning, negotiations, workplace stress, and employee engagement. You know, just a couple things. <laughs> she is a best-selling author and has written Coloring Outside the Lines, a grown-up's creative guide to increasing emotional intelligence. And I also was lucky enough to get a, a copy of that at the retreat as well. And it is amazing. It's a lot of fun. So Sandy, thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Now, we mentioned um, negotiation coaching is one of your specialties, which I think aligns pretty perfectly with conflict resolution. So what are some common tactics between the two that you found? Yeah, absolutely. I I thought, Jordan, it might be uh, good to give you just a quick um, definition of what I think negotiation and conflict resolution is. Sure. So negotiation is, uh, it's like a method, right. Of, uh, how people settle the differences. It's a way to try to get agreement while trying to avoid argument and dispute. Whereas conflict resolution, it's the process of resolving dispute, right? So, um, now some people use the words negotiation in a lot of different aspects, And um, so, for example, I say right, you say left, and we can meet in the middle, or it goes all the way up to the spectrum of I say right, you say left, and never the twain shall meet. Mm. (laughs) So, 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 you know, some of the tactics to get to your actual question, some of the tactics Mm -hmm. I think um, are really good for people are, first, if you can define acceptable behavior, uh, in the conversation. I think that's always a good way to start. Uh, always try to find the right way to frame the negotiation. Um, so I really look at what's the clarity or the intention of this particular conversation. Hmm. Don't try to avoid conflict, just make sure it's healthy conflict, which brings us back to what's acceptable behavior because you want that diversity of thought uh, and listen more then you talk. I love uh, the whole thing about asking questions and being curious. We'll talk about that in a minute. And I think one thing that's probably really good is not jumping to conclusions, right? Mm-hmm. Assuming mm-hmm. that people are allies and not your adversaries. Mm-hmm. So when you and I were talking through this episode, you mentioned that emotional intelligence is a huge part of positively working through a conflict. So can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. Um, You know, we talked earlier about assuming allies, not adversaries, Mm -hmm. and to listen more than you speak, right? So -hmm. the thing for that is that our mindset or our, quote, filter 
of how we see things, it actually shifts when we assume that we're trying to solve a problem rather than it's you against me. Mm. So here, here's an example. I use this when I'm teaching all the time. There's two friends. They're out there. They have one orange between them. They both want the orange. And it gets to a point where they're just so disgusted with the whole conversation. They just do the Solomon thing. They just cut it in half. Both of them walk away. Neither one of them are happy. Later, when the emotions were down, they started talking about it again, and they realized that one of them wanted the rind for cooking, and the other one wanted the uh, orange for eating. They both mm. could have had 100% if they mm. had just asked for it. So mm. you know, I do a lot of work with my clients in emotional intelligence, and I really believe that acute awareness of self and others is a pillar of great leadership, and that's the foundation of emotional intelligence. How do you understand where you're coming from and where they're coming from so that you can both have great uh, interaction? Mm. Well, and I think it goes back to what I had mentioned earlier about how conflict you really tend to warp the mm -hmm. situation um, and your brain kind of starts to go a little nuts and go, oh, well, no, this person actually hates me, so I need to hate them and this is bad and I'm going to get fired and, you know, and it just kind of spirals and it's great. Yeah, it's your inner critic playing with their inner critic, right? <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. To bring in a little bit of the the enneagram. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. So, fun fact: you love neuroscience, which I think is amazing and awesome. Yeah. But you love it because of what it reveals about the way our brains work in different situations and difficult situations. So, one phenomena that neuroscience helps explain is, like you said, the inner critics that all of our brains have. So, let's chat about those little guys for a second. Yeah, Jordan, I, I'm a big neuroscience geek. I, I read everything that I can understand. <laughs> um, That's cool. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so here's the thing about inner critics. The, the poor guys, they get a bad rap, right? So mm -hmm. here's, here's what happens. When we were kids, we didn't have the language, the understanding, or the experience to explain some of the things that were happening around us. So we mm -hmm. end up creating rules to help us survive, right? Here's an example. When I was about six, I had two little sisters, and my dad was a traveling salesman. And so he would come home on Fridays, and sometimes he would just be uh, full of energy, and we would all swarm all over him, and uh, you know, looking in his pockets for the penny or the piece of gum or whatever it was that he brought home for us. And um, sometimes on Friday nights, he'd come home, and he was exhausted. And so my mom would usher us out into the backyard to, quote, go play, right, while he um, settled mm -hmm. in. Now, I remember one time when I was six years old, standing at the, <laughs> at the, um, the glass door, looking at my dad in his big, ugly, green um, recliner, and thinking that my dad didn't love me. And if I, if no. I only was better— because I was always the one in trouble. I was the stinker. Um, <laughs> if I was only better, then my dad would love me more. Now, did my dad not love me? Absolutely not. But in my little six-year-old brain, I was thinking, if I did good, then I could be in the room with them, right? So I created this rule right. about having to be the best at everything which in life mm. served me well many times. I became an achiever. But here's the thing. When you, because I'm, I'm into StrengthsFinder and all of that stuff too, uh, when you play into your strengths, if you only focus on those strengths, it's like the hammer who's looking for a nail in every problem, right? 
my uh, being mm-hmm. a good achiever sometimes would turn into becoming a hyper achiever, which meant I went to the dark side of mm-hmm. my strength, right? <laughs> Became a workaholic, yeah. right? All yeah. of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the thing is, it serves me and it doesn't serve me, right? So here's, here's another quick example of a client. Um, she came to me because she was looking for a way to get promoted to the senior vice president role. She was vice president, but she said, you know, Sandy, when I walk into a room, I'm very quiet. And so half the people in the room, they think I am this great sage because when I speak, it's really important. But the other half of the room thinks, why is she even here? She never says anything. And when we started exploring it, what we Mm -hmm. realized is that her parents had given her a rule when she was a kid that said children are to be seen and not heard. And so when you translate Mm -hmm. these rules that we create when, when we're kids, how they show up with what we're doing as adults, it's amazing how that happens. Like, so... Uh, we create, when we create these rules, these inner critics are actually created to enforce the rules that we create. So inner critics are really here to help us. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. They don't know the difference um, when something is scary between it being like a gun being pointed at us or us getting a promotion. Both of them take us out of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So what we need right. to do is the inner critic starts going crazy and it says, I want you to stay safe. I want you to stay small. I want you to run away. So it's kind of like, Jordan, it's kind of like when you're putting a cast on your leg, when the, your leg was broken, when you're five years old, really helpful at the time. Right. But if mm-hmm. you never take it off. Your leg right. kind of shrinks a little bit. You don't get the strength to hold up your adult body. So the aid actually becomes a hindrance. So here's the thing. We simply need to pull these rules from mm-hmm. our subconscious brain, and we've got a bunch of them, uh, so that we can recognize when those thoughts are playing in our head. Ah, you know what? That's the inner critic. It's not common sense, which gives us the opportunity to say, hey, thanks. I've got mm-hmm. this. We're good. And it helps minimize the inner critic's cries yeah. to be heard. <laughs> well, and a lot like what your client was explaining to you about how when she was growing up, you know, her parents had instilled that in her. Um, I mean, I can come at that from my perspective where, you know, I was always told, you know, you're a representation of this family. So whenever we went out anywhere, it was like, oh, you've got to, you know, be on your best behavior. And I think that really started instigating this almost unhealthy (laughs) strive for perfectionism, um, which I'm still dealing with to this day and trying to work through and realize like, no, it's okay to fail. It's okay to, you know, not have everything right the first time and not have all the right answers and, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a little bit of what you're saying too yeah. is your inner critic. It's almost a learned behavior. Yeah. You know I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, I have a four-year-old and I'm, I'm starting to think about like, okay, what am I doing to him? Yeah. <laughs> How is he right. going to be? It's being able to talk through those conversations because he won't understand at four what he will understand at 12, what he'll understand at 18, what he'll understand at 24. Mm -hmm. But being able to talk through things um, with Mm -hmm. a kid and and just, you know, especially at age four, they'll tell you anything. So being able to help him recognize, so what are some of the rules that he's creating? (laughs) Many of them at that age, we create for them, like, 
You have to hold my hand and look both ways before we cross the street. You don't touch a hot stove. Some of these really serve us, <laughs> right? You want to keep doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But some of them don't. And when you talk about, well, what makes you feel bad? Here's the thing. These inner critics, and we'll talk about this in a minute, the amygdala, but the inner critics are typically the emotions that make you feel bad. So yeah. if, if you are feeling guilty or if you're feeling um, sad, if you're feeling um, angry, what is it that your brain is telling you before that? Mm. Right, Because all of this stuff goes into our subconscious, and then we totally forget that it's there. And the subconscious is what rules the way that we live and work and decide um, things as leaders today. Yeah. If you can just pull it out of the, the, your subconscious, then you have more choice. So as mm-hmm. a kid, it's really helping him see, why are you feeling sorry? Why are you mm-hmm. feeling guilty? Uh, let's talk about it. Hmm. Yeah. You're never going to not have rules, right? right? We, we create rules, but which ones are healthy for us and which ones mm. may not be. Mm. Okay. So why do our brains have to have a situation figured out? I mean, I feel like when there, there isn't an immediately apparent answer, that's when we usually start assuming the worst. And then that's when situations get ugly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> our brains are answer-seeking machines, Jordan. So yeah. they, they have to have the whole picture, right? So if there's only partial information, our brain automatically fills in the rest of the picture based on our history, right? It's whether it's true history, distorted history, stories, movies, after-school specials, whatever our friends whispered to us in the closet, you know, whatever it is, we create this filter of the world, so here's a coaching tool that I love to, to, to use and I love to teach it. So when we find ourselves getting stressed, that means that we're more likely to be playing out of our amygdala. You know, the, uh, the amygdala, have you heard of the amygdala, the amygdala yes. hijack? Yes. Yeah. So the amygdala is the part of your, so here's the neuroscience geekiness coming out. <laughs> the amygdala is the part of that brain that just sits on your brainstem. It's the oldest part of our brain. So some people call it like the lizard brain, right? Mm. And its main function is to scan the room as soon as you walk in and ask, are they like me or not like me? Are they friend or they foe? Can I survive here or not? So they're highly emotional, highly vigilant. They're prone to that uh, flight, fright. Uh, freeze or please based on the assumption mm-hmm. of the circumstances, right? So here's what happens when you get stressed and you have no control over this, Jordan. The control comes later. So mm-hmm. when you get stressed, um, you know what? Let me say it this way. So you think about peripheral vision, right? Here's an example of this. When you are in quote normal mode, whatever normal mode mm-hmm. is for you, uh, most people see 180 degrees, so you know, straight out in, a, in front of them. Some of those crazy people see like 220 degrees, so they see a little bit behind <laughs> them. Right? So when you are in normal mode, you can see everything that's around you, right? When you get mm-hmm. stressed, however, this is what you have, don't have control over. Your, your body pulls oxygenated blood out of all the, quote, non-essential parts of the body, and it puts it into the arms for fighting, the legs for fleeing, and the chest for breathing. Here's a scary part. 
they say anywhere from 75 to 90% of the oxygenated blood in your brain goes into your arms, your legs, and your chest. Where does it stay? It stays in the amygdala, which is highly emotional, highly vigilant, fight, flight, freeze, or police. So when we get stressed, all of our logical, okay, this is what we can do, is gone. (laughs) Right? So you think about your son, you think about people who work for you, and you're like, why Why did Mm -hmm. you do that? Why didn't you just take one step over? It's because when you get into that stressed mode and going back to the peripheral vision, your peripheral vision goes from 180 to 220 all the way down to 30 degrees. Like you ever been in that tunnel Mm -hmm. vision? That tunnel Mm -hmm. vision, what happens there is that you're focusing exactly on what's happening in the moment, but all those options, those alternatives, those opportunities that are outside of that 30 degrees, you literally don't see them. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So using neuroscience principles, how can we understand what's going on in our brain in any of these kinds of situations so that we can correctly use those inner critics? Yeah, so in order to get out of the amygdala, right? So I left y'all in the amygdala. (laughs) In order to, quote, get back to reality, we have to shift our brains from that emotional amygdala to the logical, the prefrontal cortex. So you think about what's right behind your forehead. Mm -hmm. This is the logical brain, the executive brain. Um, So how do you do that, right? So let me ask this before I give you the answer. Mm -hmm. Jordan, tell me what you do when you're stressed. What do you do to get unstressed? <laughs> it's not pretty. Um, let's see. So when I get stressed, you're, you're 30, 30 degrees of you know vision. That, that sounds about right. Um, uh, just the spiral starts. Um, all the worst case scenario. I mean, I, so I don't know how much you know about Enneagram, but I'm a six. So I'm like the loyalist. I need processes. I need you know everything laid out. I need a plan. So when I'm stressed, I tend to really need a plan. <laughs> so if there's not one, I'm done. I'm just, I'm not fun to be around and I'm not fun to be in my own head and it's bad. So I, I'm trying to get better about like decompressing and kind of taking a breath, stepping back, going okay, this is not going to be the end of the world. Um, it's not going to kill me. It's not going to ruin my career. It's not going to, you know, damage my child. I, it, you know, this is just a problem. You know, you just have to think about it for two seconds and not let that brain go nuts. And so, yeah, it's it's not pretty and I'm getting better at making it kind of end up in a little bit better looking <laughs> place. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully that helps yeah. you. So some of the things that you mentioned to try to de-stress, right? Is mm-hmm. that you take a step back, you uh, take a pause, yep. you take a breath, you try, you know that your brain thinks in processes, so you try to create a logical list, right? A, a process mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. go through. That's exactly right. The thing is, we just got to get oxygen back in. Oh my gosh, my English teacher would have killed me right then. We have to get back <laughs> the oxygen back into our brains. <laughs> Yeah, And the only way to do that is to stop, do exactly what you talked about, right? Stop, take a pause, take a breath, and then ask ourselves a logical question. So remember, the brain can't help but answer questions. 
So if we ask it a question Mm -hmm. that forces our brain to move from the highly emotional to the logical side of our brain. So my favorite way of doing this, this is the tool that I started to talk about before. My favorite way of doing this, of of using it on myself and asking my clients is asking a scaling question because a scaling question cannot be answered from emotion. It has to be answered from logic. So Mm -hmm. on a scale of one to 10 with Mm -hmm. 10 being the best outcome, how is this thought that the inner critic is saying serving me? That's my favorite scaling question. How is this serving me? And what it does is it forces you to pause. And if the answer is like an 8 to 10, Mm -hmm. then go ahead and run. (laughs) Because about 2% of the time, your inner critic is right. Right. But it's only 2% of the time. Mm -hmm. We give it a lot more credence than the 98% that it it deserves. Mm -hmm. So if the answer is low, then you can say, huh. Well, that must be the inner critic trying to keep me safe. So then that gives you the opportunity. Here's where choice comes in. I believe choice is one of our greatest um, skills, abilities, superhero powers that we have. If the inner critic's trying to keep me safe, then what's causing me stress right now? How can I mitigate it? What can I do to make the situation better? Now you'll find yourself more in problem-solving mode then in fight, flight, freeze, or please mode. And mm-hmm. then you have choice. Then you can do something about it. What are some quick and easy steps just for anybody who maybe is in a conflict? They think they're getting ready to be in a conflict. What are some things that we can remember to achieve healthy conflict resolution? Emphasis on healthy. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think there's probably three things that would really make okay. things work um, more easily for both of us. So here's, here's a bonus one before I even get started. When you feel things escalating, it's typically what I said before, your inner critic playing with their inner critic, right? Mm-hmm. We, we all have those hot buttons, but here's the thing. We created the button, so we can take the yeah. power, we can take the emotion out of the button. Here's a, here's a quick story. I was very mean as a kid. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I thought I was being funny, but I wasn't. So my, my middle sister, extremely sensitive. Um, she's the, obvi- the obvious peacemaker in the family. And then my youngest sister, she was like se- almost seven years younger than me. She was beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed, um, irritating, right? And... Um, <laughs> So I used to tell her all the time because I've got black hair and my middle sister has brown hair. And um, so my uh, youngest sister, I used to tell her that she was adopted all the time. And it just, it just oh. you know, it, it, made her, it made her mad. And, it, you know, it, it was a huge hot button for her. And one time my middle sister said something. And I said, well, you're adopted too. And she goes, no, I'm not. It's like it wasn't even a button for her. Right. So mm-hmm. once my youngest sister realized, you know what, I'm just teasing her then the power was, she took the power away from the button. So I say it and it didn't, Mm. it didn't push her button anymore. So part of this is looking at yourself and say, okay, when people are pushing my buttons, what power am I giving them? Right? So Mm. all of that to go back to (laughs) your three steps. First of all, 
assume that they're your ally, not your adversary. When I'm teaching negotiations, Jordan, one of the things that I like to do is have somebody come up uh, wherever I'm standing because I walk around the room. Wherever I'm standing, I have them come up, and I uh, normally we start off with us face-to-face. And for many people, that face-to-face can feel confrontational. So what I do is I move Mm -hmm. them around to my shoulder, and then we look at the room together. When you do that, all of a sudden, it's us against the problem rather than me against you. Mm. And if in the conversation, if you can begin it with the assumption that you are my ally, not my adversary, I speak differently to you. I hear things differently from you. Right? So seeing them as a partner to solve the problem rather than seeing them as the barrier to getting what I want. I think that's the first the first thing. The second thing I think that's really important is being able to ask questions both of yourself, you know, some of those scaling questions, and of them. Because I think it's really interesting to be curious in a conversation. When you're curious, your buttons can't be pushed. It's almost like you're an observer. Right. So when you're an observer, the emotions aren't touching you. So when you're in conflict, it's really about the what 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 are the answers, which gets me to number three. So I really want you to listen to the answers that people give and that you give. Do the answers that they're giving, do they actually dovetail with your needs? Can you both have a hundred percent like the two friends and the orange? Can you come up with something creative that actually serves you both? So to me, the three things are assume they're an ally, not an adversary, ask questions of yourself and them, and then listen to the answers with curiosity. I feel like we could talk forever and I I hate to wrap things up, but you know, we have to. So is there anything else that you'd like to share before we go? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this and I think one of the things that I'd like to offer, uh, if, if you're people would be interested in, I, I have a, you know, we talk about inner critics here. But I also have a, a pamphlet that I that I teach out of on the inner genius. Mm-hmm. And because I came out of the technology world, everything's an acronym. So the genius are six steps that you can increase the inner genius in your uh, brain and mitigate, uh, lessen the decibel level <laughs> of your inner critics. And so I'll give you uh, that pamphlet. And then I also will give you, because we talked about uh, emotional intelligence and negotiations, I have a, a template, a framework that I use for teaching uh, emotionally intelligent negotiations. I'll be Mm. happy to give them both of that. Oh, amazing. I don't think anybody's going to (laughs) object to that. I want to see them. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sandy. We appreciate you coming. Thanks, Jordan. We're glad you joined us for this conversation about conflict resolution and how to do it well. For more information about this episode and to access Sandy's helpful tools, please visit our website, forwardwomen.org. That's the number four, W-O-R-D-W-O-M-E-N.org. And then click on podcast at the top of the page. As you move forward on your journey to work, love, and pray well, don't forget to make time for real talk grounded in truth.